We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How to find and hit on sleepers. That's what we're talking about this week on Stealing Bananas. The first show of the week, we went through mainly running back and receiver, what profiles we're looking for. Sean gave so many of his tips for what you're looking at and running back and receiver. So if there's names that we maybe don't mention, you can go do your own research and, and find guys that are really interesting. But of course, show two is the player specific one. This is where we sit and we're going to talk about all of these players. We're literally just going to give all of our, our sleepers, our late round picks, guys that we like, guys that we're on. We talk about having sort of tighter player pools, certainly in the later rounds. You have to be open to a lot of different options, but there's a lot of players that I won't even draft in the later rounds. I know that's also true for you, Sean. These are the guys that we're actually considering based on our construction and, and where we're at and, and whatever league we're playing in. Yeah, I, I should introduce this. I'm Ben Gretch. You can find me on Twitter at Yards per Gretch. You can find my Substack at bengretch.substack.com. And with me, as always, is Sean Siegel, uh, who all of his work is at Rotovis. It's fantastic. You have to make sure you're reading everything Sean writes. And Sean, this will be a really, really fun show. It should be, and I want to start off by I'm mentioning a stat that didn't make it into the previous show, uh, sort of promote one of our tools a little bit, the Rotovis Screener, which is a fantasy douche tool. We've got uh, great tools, guys on the site right now who have built a bunch of new stuff and maintain the screener in a fantastic way. But if you want to get into an old FD tool that allows you to do all kinds of crazy things, the screener is that. I was using it yesterday to look up the sleepers and try to get a little bit of a context for how many sleepers there really are that make this big impact and you know where are they coming from who should we be targeting but the numbers i think are, are so helpful for sort of calibrating our expectations we talked in the last show about how many uh, players are jumping out of the top 100 picks and creating win rates of 15 plus to go a little bit deeper a little bit uh, more into the archives with this we look all the way back to 2000 and then we see that there have been 22 players who were drafted outside the first 100 picks as re reality draft picks, right? So these are sleepers from the perspective of what their teams thought of them as well. There are 22 guys who have had a season where the previous year they scored 50 points or fewer, and then they jumped up to this 200-point season. So 200 points, always kind of what I'm looking at because 200 or more, you're making an impact in the starting lineup. Now, we talk all the time that a player doesn't have to score 200 points to be valuable. They just have to have a clear start in a week where you need them and they score points. The bottom of your roster and sleepers, that can be very important. But we're kind of averaging about one major sleeper per year 
having this big impact, then we know we're not going to get all of these guys, but obviously having exposure to some sleepers and occasionally getting this type of production can completely change your roster and your outlook for that season. Absolutely. And some of these guys on this list that you pulled since 2000, some of them are guys that you probably wouldn't draft, but they're, they're watch list guys. And some of the guys we're going to talk about today, you might not draft, but you should have them on your watch list. You should be aware of what they're capable of. I always love a list that has Nick Goings on it. He was uh, my pickup. This is way back in the earlier OOs. I probably was only playing one league still. It, I think I'm looking at it on your list. It says 2003, which would have been my fifth year playing, fourth year playing. I was uh, 16 years old. But I, I picked him up, and he was awesome down the stretch for Carolina. I think that was way back when they had like Deshaun Foster was their starter, if I'm not mistaken, got hurt. I always love seeing his name. He's somebody that uh, I have fond memories of, for sure. Some of these guys, I, I was looking at that, and that was like the one name where like, that season is pretty foggy for me in terms of him doing that. We do have some players immediately after that. Like, uh, So 2003 would have been his lower scoring season, 2004. The breakout then, uh, Jericho Kachery from 2005 to 2006. Sean McDonald you know, has that uh, season in there where I think he gets the – the Marts jump when he's trying to, to make that Detroit offense work. So some interesting guys from way back in the day. And then uh, who are those guys going to be this year? We have a lot of news coming out uh, at the running back position and also at the, at the wide receiver position as camps start to go along, people get, you know, a little bit banged up. And then we see how these running back depth charts are starting to shake out. And it's not always what we expected. Yeah, running back, I guess, is, is a good place to start. And and we do have people getting banged up. We have interesting interesting profiles late. Running back is where I wanted to get your take, uh, your guy IT's last last show. But I think sort of what you're alluding to with the depth charts, I mean, obviously we had Cam Akers go down, and somebody that we need to talk about a lot is, is Xavier Jones, who's a very interesting guy. But what about the big producer that looks a lot like Miles Gaskin, late round pick? I teased him a bunch last episode. Why don't we start with him? Well, Jamar Jefferson comes out, explodes at Oregon State, puts up all of these numbers. His career rushing yards per game are at 108, right? In order to do that, you've got to get started from game one. And the problem then is he comes out and he runs this 4-5-5-40 at 206 pounds. And NFL teams are like, well, that doesn't play. And I think that that's legitimate to an extent, right? We know that running back is the position where athleticism does allow you to accomplish so much of what you need to do at the NFL level. It's one of the reasons why our sleeper list is pretty heavy with guys who do have this plus speed because people talk all the time about breaking tackles. You need to be able to run the daylight, right? Once you've broken that tackle, you need to be able to go somewhere with it. NFL teams are skeptical about Jefferson's ability to do that, even though he demonstrated that ability with the Beavers, he's one of these guys who in our breakout rush score, which Dave Cabin always puts together, actually pops despite not having very good tested athleticism. Ben, I know that you are sort of a, a Pac-12 guy in terms of some of the teams that you follow. Do you feel like some of the players coming out of this conference are being sort of denigrated in a way that is not justified based on a conference that doesn't get the same sort of coverage and isn't considered to be quite as elite. I have to say that when Jefferson falls into that situation, he falls in, he becomes less appealing initially, but DeAndre Swift, a guy that we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about 
And then we're kind of in the situation simultaneously where, you know, maybe, maybe he's not going to play very much at all. I mean, if you've got a groin injury at this point, that's something that could limit you the whole season. So I'm looking at a guy in Swift that I think could be a mid first round pick next year. He could also be someone who plays rarely. And then you have Jamal Williams versus Jamar Jefferson. I like Jamal Williams, but I think that Jefferson would actually have a great chance to carve out production with Williams as the guy in front of him. Yeah, I think your your point about the Pac-12 is interesting for sure because um, another guy that was very productive out of the Pac-12 that didn't get a lot of hype, and I'm I'm still interested in. I think we took him in our draft a couple of weeks ago with Davis. He's another guy I mentioned on the last show or sort of teased alongside Jefferson was Eno Benjamin, who was basically last year's Jamar Jefferson. Eno didn't play at all in year one. You have a note here that he's running maybe fourth string. I want to hear what, what you've heard about that because I was under the impression he was – hopefully going to be at least third string this year because we didn't see much of him at all last year. But it is interesting when, when you mentioned the Pac-12. I mean, I do think in, in some regards it's it's fair. It is sort of the a weaker conference relative to some of the, the power conferences, especially the SEC. But there's a lot of talent that comes out of the Pac-12, especially I, I think on the defensive side of the ball. There's been, there's been plenty of talent coming out of the Pac-12 and players that have been very good at the NFL level. So it's interesting that um, – it's, it's certainly still a power conference. These are still big schools that are attracting a lot of a lot of talent. And and these guys that are productive in this conference are playing against future NFL players, maybe not the same degree or the same depth of, of NFL stars across an entire defense, but they are playing against good good opponents. It's not a you know, it's not a very a small school or you know, division one double A type situation. And it is kind of interesting that some of these guys tend to get overlooked relative to players that have very similar profiles uh, out of other conferences. Well, Philip Lindsay, another one, right? Where we were on him right away. And now, especially with the news that maybe David Johnson doesn't factor heavily into the Texans plans, you know, jumps right back in as someone that we've been drafting. And then maybe you start drafting even a little bit earlier. So, you know, these, these PAC 12 guys who were dominant had the fantastic backfield dominator ratings who were either fast or they were productive from a very young age, they seem like interesting sleepers. You mentioned Benjamin. Uh, the reports were, in my understanding, that he was sort of running third in camp, maybe looking a little bit better. We talk from time to time, even though it's kind of irrelevant, right, based on where they were drafted and, and what the teams expect from them. But, you know, Benjamin is basically Clyde Edwards-Alaire who did it younger, right? I mean, their production numbers almost identical, their physical profiles in terms of how they tested, almost identical. And yet one of them now, the Chiefs want to be a superstar. And another one, the Cardinals felt comfortable when they released their initial depth charts. You know, they felt good about putting fourth down there. So I don't know what that means for them. They may still be trying to, to motivate him in some way or just kind of signaling that uh, maybe a special teams guy has a better chance to make the roster still behind Edmonds and Connor, obviously the guys that they expect to get the job done. But Ben, that's still, I think, an interesting one as well when we're targeting backfields that may not be as locked in as people think. Now, Chase Edmonds, James Conner, either of those guys could end up being good zero running back candidates. Edmonds has the receiving ability and maybe the starter. James Conner, we, we discussed on the first show about he was one of the very top win rate guys as a sleeper several years ago. We know he has the three down profile, but neither one of these guys are locked in in an offense. They're not locked in stars. I should say, in an offense that we think could put up a ton of fantasy points to the running back. Uh, that's a team you have to really follow for sleepers simply because of what the offensive situation is. 
Absolutely. Yeah. The team situation at running back is so important. I mean, I, that, that's like the biggest thing that I would drive home when I've looked at the high value touch stuff. One of the biggest things that I've found to be most actionable when, is when I've looked at it from a team perspective and it's not necessarily very stable year over year. I think quarterback changes, coaching changes, all sorts of you know personnel changes, the actual running backs changing out has a big impact on that, but you can, I think, predict it to a certain degree. I've certainly had some success over the last couple of years targeting specific backfields and that I think are, are sort of undervalued from a high value touch perspective. Uh, I've written that article the last couple of years, sort of like team high value touch situations to look at. You know, one of the ones last year for me was the Colts. I said both that the Jonathan Taylor was going to catch more balls than people thought and that Naheem Hines had the potential to have a huge back, uh, bounce back year because they added Philip Rivers and what that meant for the running back targets. Both those guys were phenomenal picks last year. I think it's a really important way of looking at things. And it's a huge part of what I'm looking at with with sleepers at running back is what offense they're in. And that's a big reason why I think Eno is, is still very interesting. You have an interesting player in an unsettled backfield, like as you just laid out, in, in an offense that could be very valuable. As we kind of jump to some others like that, I mean, I have Wayne Gallman on my list. He's not inter- like that interesting, but we know the 49ers generate a ton of running back points, even if they're not necessarily a huge high-value touch offense. They generate a ton of running back points. Uh, I have Justin Jackson on my list. I don't know if it's Jackson or, or or Kelly or Roundtree, but no one knows, and they're all super cheap because of that. Those are guys to take shots on, in my opinion, late in drafts because of the potential for a very valuable role alongside Eckler. And should Eckler miss time, the potential to have a really strong three-down role even, or, or maybe they continue to, to to use a committee. But, I mean, that, that's an offense that's going to score points and is, is thrown to the backs a ton over the last several years. Some of that obviously influenced by Eckler himself and then Rivers before uh, Herbert. But Herbert continued to throw to the backs a lot last year. Uh, I, I think that's a, a great scenario to be looking at in the backfield. Justice Hill's another guy we've talked about is uh, an interesting name. Again, not necessarily a huge high-value touch backfield, but he's now third on the depth chart on a team that generates running back points. They're more efficient running the ball because of Lamar's rushing ability. We know rushing quarterbacks add to running back efficiency. And so grabbing an interesting player, a prospect that you really liked coming out, um, has has some arguments for, look, the Ravens probably still like him, even though they didn't use him a ton last year. They've kept him around and has some arguments for how he could excel if, if you know, an injury happened in front of him. So, yeah, the, the, the team situation, whether the team can generate enough running back points is a big, I think, leak in fantasy drafters, I would say. team People are taking second running backs on teams that, aren't good and aren't going to be a, a very fruitful situation if something breaks right for you when I would rather be taking the third running back in a situation where, you know, maybe he has to overcome more to get there, but if he gets there, then the ceiling is actually there. Right. Exactly. And we just got some more reporting today. I wrote a somewhat negative article on Austin Eckler recently, purely based on price. He's one of my favorite players in the entire NFL. I think that, there's an argument that the team should try and use him even more than I, than I expect them to do. But but I do think that there is a disconnect between what his ceiling probably really is and where he's being drafted. Well, we have more reports today that the Chargers are going to give him a rest, which, I mean, you could argue that that also makes some sense, right? So there are going to be some standalone touches for some of these guys. And then definitely in the case of an injury, there's going to be a ton of value for these Chargers. The Chargers guys are also interesting too. We drafted Joshua Kelly. I kind of argued against the other guys when we were on the clock with Davis. I now consider that to be a mistake. So I have to apologize to you guys for that one. Uh, Jackson 
and Roundtree, right? Jackson is another one of these crazy players where I don't exactly understand what's happened with the whole D. He's got a 6.83 cone. He's got a 38 and a half inch vertical. So those check the boxes for me as, as solid to elite athleticism. For a guy who's 200, his 4.5240 isn't great. But you look at some of those peripheral numbers, like that plays at the NFL level. Then you go in and, and you look at his box. And Ben, you know, the, the lowest number of yards from scrimmage he had in four seasons at Northwestern 1388 <laughs> that was the lowest in four seasons right so I mean you're, you're talking about a guy who was able to do it in college has NFL athleticism at points he's seen close to the NFL level but then when he's gotten his chances he hasn't really broken through and I think again if you're not someone who's expected to be a star you get a chance you don't get it done and then the next thing that happens is your coach moves you down the third string and people are talking about you getting cut. So perhaps this new coaching staff with the Chargers will be exactly what Jackson needs to get things going again. Now we've selected Kelly. Kelly has kind of an interesting uh, sort of second level profile where we would expect him to be a solid NFL player if he got a chance. Do you have any thoughts on Roundtree? Roundtree is a guy that I haven't been looking at as much. He doesn't necessarily follow the path that we're looking for but he did have 2000 yard seasons in college in terms of yards from scrimmage he had 47 receptions he's got a sub seven three cone at a pretty good size do you have sort of a preference when you're looking at sleepers between guys like jackson and kelly who have arguably failed to an extent now kelly in very minimal opportunities and and would be one of those guys a little bit like a zach moss who i think you know if, if someone has unrealistic expectations, doesn't meet those as a rookie. You want to be on them again as a second-year player when they're basically free. You don't want to be on them you know, in the first 10 rounds. But he did fail a little bit, whereas Roundtree doesn't look like as good of a prospect, but the fact that it's wide open in terms of what he could be at the NFL level, how appealing is that? I mean, it's a little bit appealing. It, it's It's been hard for me with him. I have not taken him a lot just because of you know the sixth-round draft capital but he does have a little bit more size than Jackson, which is, I think, you know, somewhat interesting. If they don't like Kelly, especially that that they could potentially think of the the complement to Eckler as needing to be one of the two bigger guys than Jackson. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Jackson's just a guy that I've always had kind of a, a a fond opinion of. You mentioned that he, you know, wasn't necessarily amazing in his rookie year when he got some opportunities, but. Through his career now, this guy has averaged 4.9 yards per carry over three seasons, only has, you know, 140 career carries, but uh, also been efficient in the passing game. I'm pretty sure Justin Jackson is a, is a good player, especially when we talk about his, his long production profile. So that's what's made me lean towards him. It wouldn't necessarily surprise me if it was Roundtree. I think it's worth taking shots on, on, on both of these guys, especially now that, as you're saying, like we, we probably shouldn't necessarily be quite as high on Kelly, but I definitely have some some shots on Kelly too. I think all three are worth having some exposure to. And it's sort of the mistake that people are making that no one knows who the RB2 is. And so no one wants to attack this backfield. Even if it is Roundtree or Kelly that that is uh, starting as like the, the third back, I still think they're a worthwhile pick where you take them at the very end of, of drafts because – uh, we, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. It's very possible that the Chargers sort of adjust with their running back two spot. It's, it's obviously certainly possible that injuries can shake things up. So this could be a backfield where we get 
at the end of last year, they had Kalen Balazs playing. So the, this could be a backfield where we get a couple different guys playing throughout the year. There's certainly guys to watch on the waiver wire as well. I, I, I want to mention a couple boring running backs that, you know, before we kind of shift off too much, but I, I think are interesting from this concept of the, the backfields can generate points. Um, Giovanni Bernard is somebody that is going still too late. I would take him over Naheem Hines straight up this year. I just mentioned liking Hines last year. Hines, one of my favorite players as, as this sort of receiving archetype that I have always really liked, but I'm very concerned about the, the loss of rivers. And then also you wrote a great article about Jonathan Taylor taking a step forward, potentially in the passing game based on a lot of the comps and similar players. I mean, you, you do have this really great second year back next to you that really crushed down the stretch. I think it makes it really tough to see Hines repeating what he did. And he's, he's, you know, what, what we see with the pass catching backs is they're, they're sort of volatile year over year. They're very dependent on their situations, at least in my opinion, in my under, you know, in my um, experience, I haven't necessarily done a ton of research to, to confirm this, but this is just sort of my belief. They're pretty volatile year over year. And what we see a lot of times is the, the last year's big splash receiving back goes a little bit too high the next year. Um, Gio is the one this year for me, even though he's older, that is in a great situation. The Bucks are going to throw plenty. Brady loves throwing to his backs. And the other backs there can't pass block and can't catch. So I, I just feel really good about him. Sony Michelle's not even getting drafted, but he's probably going to get 10, 10 touches in week one. I mean, they're, they're talking about him as the 1B to Damian Harris's 1A. He was actually efficient last year. Finally showed some of what made him a first-round pick. He was over five yards per carry. Very small sample, but he also was explosive in the passing game on like seven catches. He had over 100 yards, had some big plays in the passing game. So somebody that is like at least be, becoming interesting to me on my list, uh, especially with how we know that Belichick can rotate backs. Daryl Williams looks like he might be the number two for the Chiefs. They've always liked him. That's another very interesting backfield in, in terms of fantasy scoring. Yeah, Devin Singletary not in a backfield that is um, going to be very valuable for running back points, but just just going so late for a guy that you know we do really like Zach Moss. But when you do some like zero RB builds, I just wanted to mention these guys as sort of sleepers in a different construction that I think are all worth drafting to get you some some weeks, some usability. You don't take a lot of these guys. You're you're taking more of the types that we've been talking about prior to this that are upside shots. But you do need some running back points when you go zero RB and when you and when you don't have you know the high end players at the position. Those are four guys that I think are going to all all score you know eight plus points. I would say in week one. Well, talking about some of those specific backfields, you you have me uh, intrigued, and I want to go even a little bit deeper on a few of them. Matt Breida, one of the best athletes in the NFL, and we know that based on his testing. We know that based on the actual on-field results where uh, he and, and Raheem Mostert, I think, are, are two of the guys who always end up with the fastest times in terms of uh, how they've actually performed on the NFL field. The Bills, there was some news out today that with Zach Moss's hamstring continuing to act up, but Brita is actually flashing and could factor into this backfield. I in some ways, that could be bad news for us who are, are trying to get a little bit of exposure to Moss, a little bit of exposure to Singletary. But Breed is somebody who always shows up on the zero RB list in the past. And, you know, perhaps we'll have to actually even put him on the watch list again. You mentioned Michelle. And I think that he's kind of an interesting guy because he's a former first round pick. We know that the Patriots have some investment in not looking bad there. At the same time, there are rumors that he would get cut. But I almost feel like if he gets cut or traded, then his value increases, right? And so you would almost need to have some exposure to him. When you think about a team like the Chiefs 
where Daryl Williams and Jarrett McKinnon are the backups to someone like Edwards Allaire. Now, we've been promoting Edwards Allaire, but also Rich, when he was our guest, had some, some good notes on him. I think that Edwards Allaire has the potential to be like the running back two or three this season overall. And I think he has the potential to get benched because he's just not any good. I mean, his his range of outcomes might be the widest of, of any player in the entire league. The Chiefs don't have someone behind him. I was reading a little bit about their camp reports. We didn't draft Jarek McKinnon in our draft with Davis because of his hilarious comments about the dead legs and whatnot. But supposedly McKinnon looks great in Chiefs camp. And so I, I think when you're looking at this combination of athleticism and receiving we have to consider McKinnon. I mean, they mentioned specifically that McKinnon can do some of the things that they want their offense to do. You know, he, he may be a better athlete than, I mean, part of it is just like, where is he now? Well, we know in the past, he was a far better athlete than Clyde Edwards-Alaire. And so, you know, if he has any of that, you know, he could factor in those guys kind of all fighting in those backfields to be relevant. And then you mentioned again, also the Patriots, Ramondre Stevenson flashes in the preseason game. Uh, I haven't been particularly high on him because of the production, but he's also sort of a weird player in terms of what his collegiate experience was. And so I rely on Travis May, our fantastic Debbie guru and college football guru for some information on him. One of the notes that he had is one of the reasons that Trey Sermon ends up at Ohio State and you know has the huge couple games down the stretch, goes to the 49ers, now is one of the trendiest picks in all of fantasy football, is that he was trying to get away from Stevenson and the talent issue that Stevenson presented there at Oklahoma, right? And so when we look at things and how they could develop with the Patriots, he's also someone that I think we might want to have exposure to. So for me, I mean, I think Damian Harris almost certainly is going to lead that team in points, but it's going to be difficult for him to return value at his position, even though he's not drafted that early. The other three guys there all could blow away a 14th, 15th, 16th round pick, or in the case of, you know, Michelle Stevenson, you know, you're looking at a 20th round pick or adding him after week one. I like those guys as a way to play a wide open Patriots backfield. Yeah. And it's funny, like, it, 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 like your response to me saying Daryl Williams and Michelle was to, to talk about some other guys in those backfields. And I think you're absolutely right. I don't take that as sort of adversarial to the point I'm making. I take it as like confirmation of the point I was making. And, and that should be the way that we're looking at sleepers broadly is these are backfields where there's definitely some reason to number one, to, to have a, some, at least some question marks in the starter. And number two, to, from a, from a cost per perspective, from where ADP's at to, to look at it and say, well, some, somebody here is going to, is going to, is going to win. It's going to be a, a strong pick. And I, you know, I think drafters, again, they're, they're too comfortable projecting workloads for running backs in the early rounds. And I think they also are in terms of backups in the later rounds. We're both thinking sort of in the same mindset that like these are backfields that there's going to be value late. And then we're trying to identify who, who that value is going to be. Sean, what do you think about Rashad Penny this year? I know you've been on him in the past. I can't really quit him. I wanted to hear your thoughts on him. It's one of those situations where Chris Carson – wildly favored to to be the guy there in Seattle but when you're looking at someone who's a former first round pick now they declined the fifth round option right but just because you decline the option doesn't mean that the GM and the coach aren't still looking at this guy saying we were embarrassed by selecting this guy in the first round and then he didn't do anything if you don't think that they want him to succeed and prove themselves right even at this point I mean they obviously do 
And they're talking about him being lighter, being faster, that once he came off of yet another cleanup to his knee, that now he looks incredibly explosive at Seahawks camp. So I was drafting Penny when I was worried that he was going to start on PUP, right? And for him to not only not be there, but for them to say, you know, he's lighter and faster than he's ever been, you know, he's going to create these breakaway runs, then, I mean, you have to have exposure. That doesn't mean he's going to win for you. But if you're putting your roster together correctly, you have to have those guys, a former first round pick, an athletic guy, and someone in an offense where they want to run a ton. You know, if he managed to stay healthy and Chris Carson got nicked up, he doesn't need to be out. He just needs to be limited a little bit. And then suddenly the former first round pick jumps ahead of him and the coaches are like, see, we were right all along. I mean, they want the situation to be one where they can say we were right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll note a couple things. Um, you know, Penny can, can certainly catch passes. And then right before he went down in 2019, he barely played in 2020. But he, he actually started to look like, you know, they might, it was sort of sort of maddening, but he had a couple really strong games, just two, but a really big game against Philly, a long touchdown run there, and then was playing very well, a two-touchdown game against Minnesota. I just pulled it up, and then I guess he gets hurt the next week against the Rams right away. He has over 100 total yards in both of those two games that I mentioned, and then he goes down. Yeah, I, I mentioned this a lot last year. I'm still thinking it. Like I, Maybe we were starting to see that breakout in year two. Never gets healthy in year three. Maybe it'll finally come back around in year four. A couple other guys. We never really talked about Xavier Jones. We need to talk about the Atlanta backfield a little bit, uh, but I know we're going to talk with our guest a little bit about that on show three. Anthony McFarland, we both have on our list here as well as an interesting backup to Najee Harris. Again, a lot of those are situations where we're not fully confident in the starter and there could be some, some strong value in those backfields, especially when you consider cost, right? Exactly. I, I really liked Benny Snell last year. He's one of these guys who really very similar to Zach Moss and, and David Montgomery, two players who would go way ahead of him in fantasy drafts. So it's one of those things where you know the situations are slightly different. You don't expect him to outscore those players, but you want exposure to profiles that are similar at massive discounts. When it pays off, you win. When it doesn't, you move on to the next player. You're not you know, sliding them into your starting lineup. Snell didn't succeed, though. And some of that may be just how terrible their offensive line was, but he was the second-year guy having a little bit of a chance to emerge. Now I think you have to move off of him and move to the next second-year guy, Anthony McFarland, someone who was perhaps underutilized at Maryland but did have a 1,000-yard season, averaged almost eight yards per carry, has sub-4.5 speed, and now they're talking about him as looking like a new guy in Steelers camp. And you know a lot of this is just the puff pieces that you get in fall, but it's always much better to have the guy as emerging and looking like a star in camp as opposed to not generating any buzz, right? Or falling to third, falling for fourth. You know, we don't want to look in on Anthony McFarland as he goes into year two and find that he's running behind Snell, running behind Balazs. It doesn't look like that's the case. Now, when I asked you and Davis about this, when we were drafting our team, there was concern that those guys would also factor in and would steal too many touches if Harris goes down. Do you still feel like that's the case? Does do any of these guys appeal to you as McFarland, someone that you would be targeting? I'm a little bit surprised that he's not being drafted. Yeah, I'm getting more interested in McFarland as the days go along. It was interesting to see them use Jalen Samuels a little. They, they really went away from using him last year after using him in 2019. I was kind of expecting him to get cut. And some of the reports are, are talking like they're only going to keep three backs, basically Harris, 
uh, McFarland and Balash is sort of what's being said, and, and Snell might be cut, and Samuels as well. If Samuel sticks around, I think it's a little bit less interesting with McFarland because Samuels could could then sort of take some of the passing snaps. But I would still be willing to take the shot either way, basically. I, I think I, Snell looks like he's on the way out the door. Balage, I was a little bit you know, worried about because he was sort of decent last year, and they went out and picked him up as a free agent. But then I went back and looked, and he was decent for fantasy. He wasn't very good, and he hasn't been very good at all. And 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 if McFarland is an explosive player, as all the things you were talking about, like we, it could just be a home run, basically. But yeah, I mean, are are there any other running backs you want to talk about? We we we've gone deep into the running backs. Obviously, we like to draft in ways that we're looking for running back sleepers. We'll be right back to talk about receivers and a little bit about tight ends and quarterbacks as well. Hey everybody, this is Dave Cabin from the RotoViz flagship podcast. Just stopping by to say thank you for listening to RotoViz Radio. We're offering our listeners a special 10% discount when they use the promo code RVRADIO2021 at checkout. Again, that's 10% off a one-year subscription when you use the promo code RVRADIO2021. Thanks for listening and keep on tuning in. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Sean, let's talk some receiver sleepers. This is definitely going to be another one of our long episodes, but in, in a in a good way. We, we spent a lot of time talking about the the running backs who we love. Let's jump over to receivers. We'll touch on a couple quarterbacks and tight ends. We'll give them like five minutes. They don't really matter. Um, <laughs> I We're not often taking late-round receivers, and we talked a little bit about that, but there are some specific profiles that are interesting, guys that could earn a lot of targets, guys that are young and could t- potentially – uh, be first-time breakouts like Justin Jefferson was last year. And then the the later round picks we talked about a lot on show one as well that maybe took a little while or had to earn their opportunity but have kind of been building, you know, a, a solid career out of, you know, limited opportunity so far. One of those guys that we both really like is Jacoby Myers. He's been really good from a targets per route run perspective. He's shown flashes in his couple of years, I'm 
really interested in him as a potential third-year guy. What, what are your thoughts on Jacoby? I, I like the fact that he's been good, right? I mean, within the context of what they've done, he's been about as impressive as you can be. And they continue to try and go in different directions with Nelson Aguilar, who had a good year last year, with Kendrick Bourne, who sort of teased this idea of, okay, the fifth-year guys who stick in the league and go to a new team, you know, that's where you get your fifth-year breakouts. But, I mean, it's going to be difficult for him to be fantasy relevant, right? I mean, that that would be a, a huge sleeper for us. And then I still have some attachment to Nikhil Harry because at this point the price is last round or free, right? I mean, you add him later on. The buzz has been better. They have refused to either cut or trade him. It's a situation where, I mean, he's admitted that he hasn't been very good. He's had to get slimmer. He's had to get quicker. He's actually had to go out there and compete. I think that he thought the NFL was going to sort of give it to him. And perhaps now if we do get Mac Jones and we've seen what he was able to do with those Alabama receivers, the NFL is a different story, but it would not be impossible for a rookie QB to come out and do, you know, what a Justin Herbert did last year for the Chargers. I mean, this could be a completely new offense and really open things up for these guys. And especially if Hunter Henry is not a big impact player early, then, I mean, you've got touches, you've got targets, you've got routes for both of those guys. I like to get a little bit of exposure to both, but at this point, I think we have to give the advantage to the player who's been good at the NFL level, even if he won't draft to be that in many ways, especially because he wasn't drafted to be that he's had to fight through limited opportunities to show what he could do. Yeah. And, and that's Myers who has been really interesting. I, I, I can't help but hear you talk about Harry and think about you being on Devonta Adams before year three when everyone was convinced he was terrible at football because he did have very bad, inefficient first two years. Um, you still trusting Tyler Boyd and trying to trade him from me on, on my dynasty rosters going into year three after people were convinced that he did not have a very good couple of years. Bill Harry had the great prospect profile, fit a lot of things that we liked coming out of college. It's certainly possible right? It's certainly possible. I, I have not been quite on him. Well, and, and just to mention kind of that profile, because I think that people feel like the Patriots were definitely wrong, right? I mean, you, you hear these reports about, oh, there were scouts who wanted A.J. Brown, there were scouts who wanted Debo Samuel, and Bill Belichick pushed back, wanted Harry, and he's an idiot because he wanted Harry when these other guys within his group were telling him, okay, draft these other guys, and that's the whole problem with the Patriots. Yeah, I mean, maybe if you've got some guys close and you had some scouts who did, who were on those guys and we we were incredibly high on A.J. Brown and we wanted, you know, both you and me wanted all of our readers, all of our listeners to take him. But, you know, I went back and looked through Matt Spencer's wide receiver prospect model recently, which he's been just doing incredible work for Road of Biz, and just wanted to see, well, I mean, his model is a little bit different. It's very, very advanced. It factors in a wide variety of things in a way that very sophisticated. It's like, well, were we all wrong on Harry, even from an analytical standpoint? And I mean, Harry is right there with those guys who have become stars. And again, I mean, the analytics guys will tell you all the time, like, look, I mean, no model is going to get everything right. I mean, you have to approach this with humility and it's just, it's a huge problem for the team that actually selected Harry, that he's been a bust, but from a prospect perspective, I mean, there were reasons to like him. There were reasons for the Patriots to draft him where they did. And there still is a chance that he could turn it around. It seems difficult with the Patriots because even though I think it could be better, that's probably still a limited situation from a passing perspective. Certainly.
some other some other receivers. Uh, I, I want to talk about a couple of young guys that could break out for the first time. Brian Edwards has been generating a lot of buzz, had a really impressive dominator rating, and early in the season last year was the guy and, and played well. Then he got hurt, went on IR, and Nelson Aguilar kind of took a spot more or less. Uh, I, I've been hearing more sort of pushback, like, oh, why are we all on Brian Edwards? He lost his job to Nelson Aguilar. I mean, we're on him because of the prospect profile and, and also because Aguilar's gone now, and there's certainly potential for Edwards. I mean, Ruggs didn't didn't draw a ton of targets, so there there is scenarios. I, I've talked about Ruggs a little bit. We, we have talked about Ruggs a little bit in the last few shows. Ruggs can certainly break out, but there are obviously scenarios where Ruggs isn't a high-target player. And then who is it? You know, is it Hunter Renfro? I mean, obviously it's it's Darren Waller to to a degree, but if Edwards is the guy playing on the other side and, and running ahead of John Brown, which we've been hearing a little bit, I certainly think he's he's worth considering as a guy who had a really strong profile and is now heading into year two. Yeah. So you look at Edwards and you've got a four-year guy who didn't generate a lot of raw volume. And both of those things are red flags, right? Both of those things do knock him down a little bit, but when we look at his career yardage share, you know, 28%, you look at his career dominator, 28%. I mean, those are in the ranges where guys have a chance, especially if they come out of offense that didn't show them off that well. You know, if you're a, a low volume receiver from a raw perspective in college and your team was a juggernaut, then yeah, I mean, you're probably not an NFL prospect. But they didn't necessarily do him a lot of favors there at South Carolina. And so if you're looking for a sleeper and you're getting a decent price on it now, Edwards is moving up into a range where you might be a little bit more skeptical of paying that price. But we talk a lot about how once Rondell Moore is gone, then receivers are gone. And I mean, Colin and I had this issue in our, our OT listener league where it was so wide receiver heavy early that we still needed to add some receivers late. And it's difficult to do that. And so I think that if you're into that range and Edwards is still there, I mean, I've been taking a lot of rugs because I think the breakout potential, even with all the red flags on his profile, is pretty good. You know, you, you want to do some contingency-based drafting where if it works out, I'm in on this guy. If it doesn't, I have enough wide receivers that my roster is still fine. At the same time, if you're dealing with that with rugs, it makes sense to also have some Edwards just so that you – win either way now it could be a thing where it ends up being john brown and darren waller and waller has you know one of the greatest tight end seasons ever but currently he's not even practicing now the raiders say that he's fine it's just being very conservative why would you risk a guy uh who you know is a pro bowler at this time of the season but anytime guys aren't practicing you have to be looking at some of these other players and say what if and i think that from that perspective edwards is an interesting player a very similar situation to that i would say is is philadelphia where Jalen Rager kind of sets up similarly to Ruggs, sort of this um, poor poor rookie year going into year two, was a first-round receiver. But there's also this other receiver late, even later on the on the roster in Quez Watkins, who we both like. I talked about Quez on a couple uh, podcast appearances last week, including Ship Chasing, where I'm, I'm chatting with Pat and Pete every week. And then he goes out and scores a 79-yard touchdown in their preseason game. So, you know, obviously I, I can see the future and, and that's fantastic. But I noticed you put him on your list as well. Pat corrected me. I, I said he's a three-year player, but he, he redshirted. And so he was actually a four-year in college, but but only played three years. Redshirt junior when he, when he left for the pros out of Southern Miss. And some really strong production metrics there. Has some, some really strong speed ability. Last year got drafted 
after John Hightower, who was another speedster, didn't have quite the production profile of Quez. And so it was kind of a bummer to see that because when we talk about these late-round receivers needing a little bit more time, it seemed pretty clear the team preferred Hightower, and they used Hightower. Hightower was not very good as that deep threat for most of the year last year. Uh, and then late in the season, Quez got his opportunity and made a couple plays. He housed a, a bubble screen, much like the preseason game in an NFL game last year. I believe it was in Arizona. We saw a, you know, a little bit of, of some of some explosiveness. I think he could be interesting in really deep leagues as a as their deep threat. If you know, I, I certainly think they'll rotate one of these guys a little bit as a as a deep opportunity, you know, a, a deep a deep uh, target. And then also the fact that he's taking some of these quick hitters and and taking them to the house now already in a very small sample, but one at the end of last year, one here in the preseason, he's pretty interesting. I think he would have to be at this point expected to be playing ahead of Hightower after Hightower really struggled last year. You would think that, and you it's a little bit like the Aaron Jones, Jamal Williams situation with the Packers where Williams was drafted earlier, but we're like, I mean, Jones just has such a fantastic profile. I mean, he's going to beat him out, but maybe they'll both be good. Watkins a little bit smaller, but one of the things we talk about with the small guys is they do need to be fast, right? But then when you see that 43640, you're like, that speed will allow you to pull away. That'll allow you to do the things that a small receiver has to do. When you're talking about a guy who had a 29% career yardage share and a 30% dominator rating, I mean, that's the level of player who goes on to be a very successful NFL guy. Now, when you're drafted a lot later, that very successful can come much later in your career. And so year two might even be too early. At the same time, the Eagles have some real trouble at the wide receiver position. You have Smith hurt, which I think uh, is very unfortunate for sort of the development of their offense, because we would expect him to be the star, even though he's also a little bit of a smaller guy, but you've got Rager, you've got Smith and Watkins, doesn't necessarily profile as being a significantly worse player than those guys. Uh, maybe Smith with just how amazing he was last year. But we're not necessarily talking about a team that has a 6'3", 220-pound dominant wide receiver that's going to beat all these guys out and take all of the, the targets. Definitely. A couple rookies going late that, that we like. Nico Collins, you said earlier in the offseason – there's not one in every class, but is sort of on that Chase Claypool spectrum of a guy who is very athletic and has those traits that we're looking for. Big physical guy in Houston passing game that doesn't have really a lot of competition outside Brandon Cooks. Uh, and, and then Deami Brown, who had a very impressive profile and is getting some buzz out of Washington. They did add Curtis Samuel. They do seem to like Adam Humphreys, who's getting some buzz. A lot of the guys there seem to be getting some positive notes. And, and obviously they still have Terry McLaurin and, Logan Thomas, but if Brown plays, and I think that there, we're getting enough positive uh, positive uh, news out from him that I, I feel like we're going to probably see him plenty in his rookie year, especially as the year goes on, as we see some of these rookies start to build out playing time later in the season. And he's a pretty strong prospect in his own right. He is, and so much of what North Carolina did, I think, was arguably predicated on his ability as a vertical receiver there. Curtis Samuel, uh, one of the guys where uh, I want to like him, but he, he seems like he's overdrafted, right? It's not that he couldn't work out, but you're paying more than what the probabilities are, are suggesting there. If the defense is taking away McLaurin, then uh, not to give too much away, but Ryan Fitzpatrick may factor into our QB sleepers in show three. And Fitzpatrick seems like the perfect guy to unlock Brown. 
you mentioned Houston. They don't have very much. Brandon Cooks seems like someone who could have like a 35% target share if he weren't somebody that we knew was very good, but not that kind of receiver, right? And so if you think about, well, who could be good with Tyrod Taylor? It's exactly that Collins profile. So I think in both situations, you mentioned guys that we like, guys who have this explosive ability, and guys where the opportunity might be better than people think. Absolutely. A um, couple other young guys that that dealt with injuries. Uh, KJ Hamler, one that we really like, second second rounder last year, very strong prospect profile. And Paris Campbell, who didn't necessarily have as much production in college, but has so far in a small sample done a pretty good job in, in terms of targets per out run, earning targets. It looks like an early last year before he went down, looked like he was their clear slot guy and was going to earn some pretty good volume. He looked like he might have been a hit last year if he could have stayed healthy. As you know, that what everyone was saying last offseason is going to be Rivers, Keenan Allen out of the slot, you know, a, a, a discount version of that. And had a couple games early, or at least one where he had maybe like eight targets or something. Um, his targets per out run so far in his limited career have been pretty strong, significantly better than than what we saw from Michael Pittman last year, which has been you know something I've been weighing when I've been looking at Pittman is that you know Campbell could be kind of a thorn in his side, even though I you know I, I am okay with Pittman as well as a second year option. But those are two guys that you know both both had a little bit of injury issues and. And could, could be other young guys that could make a step forward from the late rounds. Yeah, Campbell is, is a weird one, right? Because he's got this 4-3-1-40. Again, we talk about these smaller guys, and Campbell isn't isn't tiny. I mean, his testing was you know 72 inches, 205 pounds. So you're talking about a guy who could be that possession type of receiver, but a 4-3-40 and a 40-inch vertical you know, you go back and you look, and there's not necessarily a thing where, oh, he was better than Terry McLaurin in college, so he'll be better at the NFL level. That's not the way that it works. But it's interesting that he had more than twice as many receptions as McLaurin when they were both uh, at Ohio State that last season. And then you mentioned again this ability to draw targets when he's on the field. So the question is, is he going to be on the field? You know, how will this offense run? Ben, I I'm interested. You mentioned in an earlier show this week, I love the headline when you sent out stealing signals you said here are my projections and here is why they don't matter you know how about that for a clickable headline when you're projecting the colts right do you have a sense of how you think this offense is going to work i mean we talk all the time and i, I just published an article a couple of days ago talking about how if you want to start running back running back well just then draft all the second year wide receivers and you'll probably still be fine but Pittman feels like potentially an exception to that in that maybe there are some things that are a little bit more red flags about his profile. And in a situation where you've got Carson Wentz who may not bounce back, may not even play and an offense that could be run heavy. And then an offense where we don't really know what T Y Hilton and Paris Campbell are going to give us. Uh, there are a lot of question marks, especially when these running backs can also catch passes. Yeah. And, and Frank Reich has rotated players. He's used guys like Zach Pascal out of the, out of the deeper parts of um, his wide receiver depth uh, you know marcus johnson has a deep threat a little bit at times in the last couple of years he's not even on the team anymore but i'm just giving an example of how he's rotated guys certainly done that at tight end we've seen as many as three tight ends be involved throughout different colt seasons recently and he's also certainly done that at running back at times you know taylor had that stretch in the middle of last year where he started to lose a lot of playing time because he was you know making some rookie mistakes and, and they were going jordan wilkins and and naheem hines i i think the receiver situation 
I think it's it's challenging is what it comes down to. Pittman was their one guy last year that had the highest average snap share throughout the season. He played over 80% of the snaps or on average, or maybe it was 78% or something right in that range. It's not as high as you'd like to see necessarily. I don't know if a Colts player will ever be in the 90% plus range, which some receivers do play 90% of their team snaps over the course of a full season and run a ton of routes. So that's the first knock is like, maybe he's not a guy that will ever get to run all the routes. He might be the one that runs the most. They did, they did have him run quite a few routes last year. Uh, but then the Campbell concerns, like I said, coming out of the slot, you still have T Y Hilton. The way I projected it is to put them all right in the same range, right around like 90 targets. And and that's sort of how I, I feel that it's going to go. But the reason I mentioned the targets per out run in the small sample that, that Campbell's been a little bit more, able to to earn them is that if one of these guys does go to 105 110 targets and be more target dominant more weeks i i feel like it's going to be campbell over Pittman. unfortunately for, for people who are really high on Pittman, but i could very well be wrong on that but that's that's sort of been the way that i've been thinking about it and then certainly with the injury to once and everything else they're going to be run heavy i mean they have jonathan taylor so i, I completely agree with you I, I haven't been taking a lot of Pittman. i think you can take stabs um I have him on some rosters where I'm co-managing and things, but when I'm when I'm on the clock on my own, he's not a guy I ever pull the trigger on, to be completely honest. And so that's the way I'm, I'm sort of playing that as well, where it, I think it's a tricky choice. Uh, Colin and I also debated Campbell versus Hilton for some of our late wide receiver selections in these listener leagues. But Campbell gives you, I think, a little bit of that breakout potential that Hilton, by contrast, has maybe collapsed decline potential, but yet Campbell will do it for you a lot less expensively than Pittman. Pittman may be a better chance, but I think with the price differences, Campbell's the guy we're looking at. And obviously Campbell fits the, the theme of sleeper a lot better. Ben, break down this Chargers passing attack. Uh, this is an interesting one because there are some very promising and just you know mouthwatering elements to what Mike Williams could do if he finally puts it all together. You know, they said during the offseason he's going to run uh, this role in the offense that's very high volume. And then there's just very recent news where Justin Herbert's saying, I've got to get in the ball. I mean, he's so dynamic. I've got to get in the ball. And yet what you hear out of camp is that Williams is kind of the guy that we saw last year where he's just out there, right? And so, you know, if you have Keenan Allen, but then you're looking for other targets and, you know, if the team, if, if the quarterback is kind of already hinting, that Williams is someone you've got to force the ball to because he doesn't actually flash at practice. Uh, do we have some sleepers here for, for the chargers? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good way to start to think about this offense because Mike Williams, again, I'm going to go back to targets per out run. He started his rookie year, very small sample, 17% of routes. That's pretty good for a rookie, but then he went down to 16.8% in a bigger sample in year two. And then he's run even more routes in year three and four, and he's been 16.2%, 16.7%. He's been right in this exact 16 to 17% range for four straight years. You know, I haven't done like a, a massive amount of, of long-term research on targets per out run, but I don't see a lot of guys that wind up as the, the elites. And I, I've certainly looked at a lot of the profiles in this little lookup tool that I, that I built. And I don't see a lot of guys that do that and then suddenly become 20 plus percent targets per out run guys. I think what we've sort of learned with Mike Williams, at least in the role that he's in and the offense that he's in, if those jumps happen, a lot of times it's something significant change like the, the Robbie Anderson types. Um, but even Anderson wasn't that low back with the Jets. I, I just don't think that Mike Williams is probably going to be a guy who jumps into a ton of targets. He's, he's been 
an efficient player at times, definitely. Like on, on the yards per target side and, and touchdown side, he's had a big touchdown season. There's reasons, I think, to take shots on him. But if he's never really going to be super target dominant, and then Hunter Henry's also gone, and I don't necessarily think Jared Cook, and I think Donald Parham's kind of interesting. He's one of my really, really deep tight end sleepers that I think is fun. But I don't think they're going to get as many targets as Hunter Henry did at the tight end position last year. It, it becomes pretty interesting to think about this explosive offense and who the third receiver could be. Now, Jalen Guyton ran a lot of empty routes last year, not a high target spot run. In fact, a very low one. Uh, Josh Palmer, they drafted a lot of people like him. But that's a good example of a guy that, to your point, wasn't was never really productive. It wasn't a great passing game necessarily, but he also didn't do very much in terms of you know percentage of the offense or dominator rating. Four-year guy, never had over 500 yards receiving, I think. I mean, you can blame it all on, on the quarterback all you want, but the way that I would frame it, and, and I know there's some people and, and some film guys that really like some of his traits, the way I would frame it is maybe they're uncovering something that has the potential to be you know, him be a little bit better than what we would expect, which is from his prospect profile, essentially a bust. Maybe they're uncovering something that, that has the potential for him to be uh, an interesting player to a certain degree, but I don't expect by any means that he would be a target dominant player at the NFL level, and especially not right away as a rookie. And so then you look at this other guy, Tyron Johnson, who you and I have talked a lot about. We both like over 15 yards per target last year, had some explosive plays, didn't run a ton of routes, just over 150 routes, which is not a huge number. Usually the, the league leaders are up in the 600s, but was very efficient when he when he did get out there, got targeted per route nearly as much as Mike Williams at 16%. And that was, you know, in his first real playing time at the NFL level and st- sort of started to kind of build on that late. I, I think he's the one with how efficient and how good he was. He's the one that, you know, we don't have this long track record like with Mike Williams where he never took a step forward. He's the one that I could see taking a step forward and being sort of the second target guy on this offense if he gets the playing time, if he beats out Josh Palmer and is playing in three wide receiver sets. Yeah, and you mentioned some of the peripherals there. I mean, this is a guy who drew only 26 targets but had 498 air yards and yet caught 20 of the 26 targets, right? So you're talking about someone who, again, in a small sample, but had this amazing connection with Justin Herbert. If Herbert takes the next step, and it's been interesting to see him kind of fall a little bit in the last couple of weeks in terms of where I've seen him go in a lot of drafts, our range of outcomes tool suggests he is going to take the next step. I think people who watched him play as a rookie, you know, feel like he should be a, a superstar. You know, where does that superstar ability manifest? Which receivers does it go to? I mean, so far that's been Johnson. Absolutely. And then we both had Marcus Callaway as one of our first names here. Just, I mean, Michael Thomas is gone. Definitely an opportunity for Callaway to to be the essentially the leading target getter outside of Alvin Kamara. He had a 10 target game last season. Wasn't really great actually over the course of the season in terms of like targets per outrun. But if he's sort of playing the Michael Thomas role, which he seemed to be at least in that one game, there's certainly potential for high target volume. But I want to ask you, I mean, we have a couple other names like Terrace Marshall, and I, I put on my list, but he's going a little higher. Rondo Moore, you mentioned, those are guys that we should target. Denzel Mims, I think, is going so late that if you're in a really deep league, it's it's almost like there is the potential that he still has upside. He's still somebody that I'm willing to take shots on and, and hoping that the chaos works in his favor. There's been weird stuff with his health and all sorts of things, and certainly he's been running with the backups, but He's going so, so late now for a guy his athletic that um, he has the traits and things that that I think it's worth a bet in. You know, I took him in the 23rd round of a 25-round best ball recently. Like, 
yeah, I'll take a shot there. But I wanted to ask you quickly before we move away from Palmer and Callaway, what are your thoughts on these guys being both Tennessee products, having some overlap, perhaps limited by that offense, and both of them being sort of buzzy players whom a lot of people think will outperform what they did at Tennessee, but McCalloway, the more productive of the two from a market share perspective, I mean, does that give him the edge? Is that some other little sort of cherry on top that you'd be thinking about with him? Like if, if Josh Palmer supposedly is this good, I mean, Callaway could be better. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that's a, an interesting note. The, the way uh, I'm going to steal from Pat Crane, he, he mentioned the other day talking about this, the way he phrased it was that they're the sort of correlated bets, right? Like we saw with, on the flip side, really good players playing with each other in college. The, the Beckham and Landry one comes up all the time. Clemson, when, when they had Hopkins and Sammy Watkins and uh, Martavis Bryant all at the same time. We've talked about it with Alabama, not knowing necessarily if they were all good. And 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 that was you know similar to the Clemson situation. Or, or maybe they're all just sort of like being overvalued because people think that they, they cut into each other, but it was just such a prolific offense. But they are correlated in some way when we see these pro- the production uh, around each other. So... It is interesting when you bring up that note that like, yeah, maybe all the Tennessee receivers were bad or maybe it's the case that the, the Tennessee situation was really bad. And and this, if you're optimistic about Palmer, you should be even more optimistic about Callaway basically. All right, Ben, we have to get into the key part of the show, which is you're going to give us this year's Logan Thomas. <laughs> I don't have a this year's Logan Thomas. It's, it was an interesting situation to see Logan Thomas sign for more money than you would have expected. It wasn't a lot of money, but more money than you would have expected. And to be in an offense that had a lot of available targets and all of those things. I will say that the tight end that signed for a lot more money than you would have expected that I thought was interesting this offseason is bad news for a potential breakout tight end in Adam Troutman because it was Nick Vanette who signed three years, eight million, just kind of been a journeyman. He's more of a blocking type, but... Troutman only got 16 targets last year and ran a decent amount of, of routes. His, you know, again, I, I love to talk about targets per route run. His targets per route run were 11%. That is very, very bad. We're talking like Jalen Guyton level bad. Guyton was at 9%, so he was even worse. But I'm not for a minute drafting Adam Troutman in any league just be, based on that alone. Like to me, that makes it really hard to see him break out in year two. So, if he's struggling to earn targets and if he continues to struggle to earn targets, it could be Nick Vanette. <laughs> you know, we were just talking about how much opportunity there is with the saints and they paid him a decent amount of money. I don't think he's Logan Thomas. The other one is like Jordan Akins, who's just sort of this boring older than you think tight end. We just talked about with Nico Collins. They don't, you know, I, the, the problem is I don't think Houston's going to throw a ton. I, I think we're going to see probably Tyrod Taylor start week one and, and that's going to limit the overall volume. So, it's hard to be like, oh, there's a ton of targets available because there probably won't be a, a lot of targets available. They, they might be one of those bad teams that still runs with the way that they invested at running back. So those are the the dudes that are vaguely similar to the, to a Logan Thomas profile, but I don't really think there's one this year. By contrast, we have some young guys who could be superstars, right? We talked about, and someone who I focused on for the Rotoviz rookie guide and someone encouraging people to kind of use your fourth round pick on in your rookie drafts, get a little bit of exposure to him before he starts to generate uh, this buzz in the off season and in training camp, which he has done 
Uh, Jacob Harris, right? So the question there becomes, you know, is he going to be, is he going to stay tight end eligible? But Ben, when we're looking at Harris versus Kyle Pitts, right? And again, in, in this particular season, it might be something where the athletic numbers could be a little bit misleading, but you have Pitts the 4-4-4. Well, that's incredible 40 speed at that size, you know, 245 pounds. But Jacob Harris, a lot lighter, but also tall, maybe plays this tight end position, 4-3-9, right? Pitts, 33 and a half inch vertical, Jacob Harris, 40 and a half. The three cones, 7-12 for Pitts, 6.5 for Harris. So again, I think some people are clicking the uh, the stopwatch early for him because that's like Christian McCaffrey three cone time, which we can be pretty confident he doesn't have. But Jacob Harris, someone who actually was a pretty good receiver his last couple of years in college, after he makes this transition from sort of being a soccer player in high school, I've been a little bit confused about Tyler Higby's ADP, which, you know, I'll, I'll just say that I'm probably wrong on that, but it, it feels to me like the Rams have some more options, some more deep options that are being factored into the ADPs of some of their early guys. Yep. I totally agree with that. Um, you know, they, they went out and got Tutu out well, right? But people are just completely pretending like he doesn't exist because he's 150 pounds. Like, yeah, we know that's probably not a great thing, but we also don't have a massive sample. And he was very productive. He could certainly be at least a gadget or, or additional piece who takes a lot of volume in the short area of the field. They try to get him in space. They, they drafted him for a reason. He went in the second round. And again, very strong production metrics out of college. And then they also brought in Deshaun Jackson, who, yeah, he's been hurt for a ton of years. He's really old, all these things. But Whenever he's played in his entire career, he's been an efficient and good receiver. Uh, people are pretending like those guys don't even exist, more or less. So yeah, I like Harris. I think he, yeah, I think he's interesting. Uh, Kylan Granson has gotten a lot of a buzz, and I was just talking about the Colts using multiple tight ends. I also think Mo Ali Cox makes a little bit of sense as a, a as a an efficiency play late. He's probably not going to get enough volume though. I think there's a, a hope that he's going to step way forward, but I think we'll see some of Granson as well as obviously Jack Doyle. In the front, that's sort of the lead guy. I'm more thinking in the in the middle rounds is where I got to finish my tight end exposure. And we hinted a couple of weeks ago that there were some middle round tight ends that we were liking. Sean, you're talking about not really liking the tight ends, but starting to come around on a couple guys, a couple young guys in Irv Smith and Cole Komet that we're both starting to like. Uh, Robert Tunyon is another one in the middle rounds that we spent a little bit more time talking about recently. But I do sort of like with Hunter Henry getting banged up. I think John Smith becomes a little bit more interesting. Gerald Everett, I've gone back and forth on, but those are guys that I'm sort of drawing a line at tight end and not going too much deeper than those guys. But Irvin Komet, I know for sure you've mentioned being guys that you've uh, been willing to take in these middle rounds and I think are uh, pretty interesting tight end bets. Yeah, you look at where Komet went in last year's draft, you look at the fact that he really separated uh, from the pack there. Think of him in terms of being this year's TJ Hawkinson or Noah Fant. Now, he's not quite to the level of those guys, obviously, as a prospect. And I think because he's not quite to that level, a lot of people are completely forgetting about him. But he, again, has this opportunity within the Bears offense to have a huge target share compared to what people, I think, are thinking, right? One of the other things that I always want to mention on the tight ends is that Blair has done some great work in the wrong read about how you do want to be targeting these second-year tight ends. Now, it may be, you know, year three, year four. Uh, for some of them, it's been year five where you get the huge, huge seasons, but tight ends do take a big step in year two. So if you're looking past that to year three, year four, you may be waiting too long. 
you combine that with the incredible buzz that Komet has been getting in training camp. And I think that you have to have him on almost every roster, right? Because you, you think of the FFPC, we're playing a lot of these leagues. You and I are going to do a main event. We're currently working on the Rotoviz Triflex. Uh, we've got some FBG leagues going. We have some best ball. You have the $100,000 contest there. With best ball, you need to have the three tight ends. How do you get to three tight ends without taking some guys who are not stars, right? I mean, you, you have to hit on the potential breakout, and especially if you're trying to win the whole thing. Now, we had this debate with Davis where we just we couldn't get agreement on any of the early guys, and we ended up with Komet, and he was saying afterward, well, that's, that's not good enough to win. I guess I disagree, or maybe it's just being a, a huge optimist i think that that is the kind of play you have to make so if you're in a best ball league where you've got to get a bunch i mean commit has to be sort of a, a pillar of that strategy but if you're in a managed league where maybe you're only going to play one if you miss early and you definitely don't want to but i mean commit has to be a part of it but then also he's got to be your number two in a ton of leagues just tactically he's someone who at his adp and with the potential to jump both in terms of volume and in terms of fantasy points he just is maybe one of the four or five most important players in all of fantasy. Now, I, I was off of this when we were drafting with Davis, but I've been turned around on it. Irv Smith, you have Dalvin Cook, right? One of the best running backs in football. The offense is going to revolve around him. You have Justin Jefferson, who may be the best young receiver in football. And you have Adam Thielen, a declining probably, but still someone who is an established elite player in an offense where you just you don't expect there actually to be a lot of extra volume and then most of the signs about Irv Smith over the first couple of years not great that's that's all been changing right I mean they've gone out of their way to suggest that he's going to be the guy who really changes the offense this season and I think if you watched him the last several years he looked like someone who could get open at will who could really make the offense dynamic and you're watching Kirk Cousins and you're watching the play design and you're like why does Minnesota not want to score points and win games? Well, it looks like maybe they've also made that decision and Smith is going to be the guy. Ben, tell us why we should have Smith in the range he's going on almost every team. Yeah, I mean, he came into the league really young out of an Alabama team that had a ton of players on it. Wasn't, you know, massively productive at Alabama, but had some production for a team that had all those players that we talk about, uh, all those wide receivers. But I'm really interested about you know, what the team will look like there. Everyone's been clinging to this quote that, uh, that Mike Zimmer had that Tyler Conklin is expected to take a bigger step forward than Irv Smith with Rudolph gone. I heard that as like a, of course, it makes perfect sense. I don't even think it is a negative for Irv Smith. And the reason is they run a ton of two tight end sets. This is a team that uses basically two receivers and two tight ends a lot of the time, almost half the time, which is a really high amount for, you know, for any NFL offense. And that means that Irv Smith was already playing a ton of snaps last year. If you go back and look at his snap rate and all those things, he was playing plenty. He didn't really break out. He didn't earn a ton of targets. But he did see uh, targets on right around 15% of routes, which I usually say is sort of low for wide receivers. For a tight end, not bad, especially playing alongside Kyle Rudolph. The way that I see the Rudolph exit and the Tyler Conklin um, bump in snaps working in, in favor of Irv Smith is now he's competing with certainly a much less accomplished fellow tight end for these short area targets for potential red zone targets. So yeah, uh, on one hand, it makes perfect sense that Conklin's the guy that's adding role, like Zimmer said, because Smith was already playing a ton. Conklin's the one's going to go from like a 30% snapshot, 20% snapshot up to maybe 70% in being these two tight end sets. 
But on the other hand, Irv Smith is the one that is going to be leaned on more heavily as the third, the clear sort of third target, or that's the upside case at least, now that there is no Kyle Rudolph next to him and it is Tyler Conklin. And Conklin is, you know, vaguely interesting in a super deep tight end premium league. If you're, you know, playing best ball or whatever, he's probably going to get some targets too in a lot of these two tight end sets. But Smith, I think, has the room now to potentially be more target dominant. Certainly, I don't think he'll ever be massively target dominant, but uh, target dominant enough. And he's a good athlete. And then the, the other area that I think is really interesting, we talked about Dalvin Cook's huge rush EP. You've talked about that a lot. A big part of that is he led the NFL in carries from the three-yard line and in. He had 20 last year. Some of that is just sort of luck of the draw with Minnesota getting that many plays in that close. That that type of um, play volume that close to the goal line tends to be highly variable team by team because some teams are getting tackled inside the five at a higher rate and some teams are just scoring touchdowns from further out, right? And then we also have Adam Thielen who scored 14 touchdowns last year. People are really banking on him to, to continue to score a high number of touchdowns. It was a massive TD rate, and he actually had a really high TD rate the year before, but for most of his career was sort of on the lower end in terms of TD rate. Only 74 catches last year. Even if he has, you know, a little bit more um, receiving volume overall, what, what have you, there's just almost no way he can score 14 touchdowns again. My point is with both of those stats, Cook and Thielen, is this is a team that has some sneaky room for touchdowns to shift elsewhere. You made that point about Justin Jefferson a couple weeks ago and got me thinking a little more positively about Jefferson. I think it also benefits Irv Smith. I think he's going to be the clearer of the two between him and Conklin that could benefit from that at the tight end position. So some sneaky potential for Smith to earn a little bit more target volume without Rudolph next to him, and then certainly more touchdown potential. And there's some efficiency upside that uh, at, at this point, when you're drafting tight ends and you start to get into the later rounds, yeah, we love huge target potential. I don't think that's going to be there for Smith in a low volume offense with two kind of clear top dogs in the passing game. Uh, unless one of them were to maybe miss some time, but you can take the the the, the potential for a, a high efficiency season that I think we could see from Smith as, as a, a reasonable play. And I think those two guys fit very well with what we need to do structurally at tight end, where we know there are some formats that Travis Kelsey and Darren Waller make good picks even in the first round, but you may have some other directions you want to go in the first round with the type of talent that is available there, you move down a little bit and you're starting to take that shot at TJ Hawkinson, who ha has been, you know, maybe the biggest winner of, of all the training camp in terms of how people are looking at him. Then you move down a little bit later, you take that shot at Noah Fant, maybe Logan Thomas, and then you move down a little bit more. Earth Smith and Cole Komet help you by giving you targets in ranges where you need targets because in all tight end premium leads, you're going to need two guys who are relevant, not just guys you can fill your roster with. In best ball leagues, you may need three guys. You start to wait until the really late rounds. It's not impossible to get someone who comes out of there, but you're putting your team in a, in a very bad position structurally. So uh, where these guys fit, they do a lot for us in terms of making sure that we have people we can target at different points to give us outs as we go through the draft. Now, Talk about some potential late round guys. Well, we have a great guest in our third show, Jamie Eisenberg. He's going to give us some late tight ends that we can target as well. But Ben, I think that does it for our sleepers episode, uh, even longer and more than we were anticipating, but it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. It's been a lot of fun. One of our longer episodes, I think, but I, I think people probably listened through this one <laughs> because we, we named a lot of interesting names that we think 
are, are worth looking at in the later rounds. And I, I'd be willing to to bet that a few of these guys that we talked about today are going to prove to be really valuable sleepers this year. Well, that's going to do it for today's sleeper episode of Stealing Bananas. Uh, we're going to continue drafting in our Rotoviz Triflex Dynasty League. Keep you up to date on that. We'll be trying to win $500,000 with Davis. Keep you up to date on that team and some other teams that we have coming. I'm Sean Siegel. With me, as always, is Ben Gretchen. You can follow at Yards Per Gretch. Make sure you check out Stealing Signals, the best newsletter in the fantasy industry. Uh, if you want to subscribe to Rotoviz, one of the great ways to do it is by using the code RV Radio 2021 at checkout. That will give you a 10% discount. We really appreciate all of our listeners. Uh, please subscribe to our feed. It will help us and you'll get these episodes as soon as they come out. And we have another one coming up in just a couple of days. Drop us a rating review on your favorite podcast app. That's made a big deal to us as we've been growing the podcast early on. And we appreciate so much the feedback that you all have been giving us. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.